Welcome everyone to the second episode of Lazypedia. I am Coley Angel. And I'm Bradley. Right, and today we're going to be talking about history, and specifically we're going to be talking about the history of what? Uh, today is going to be the American Revolution, um, and this is kind of going to be the first part of um, what I hope is going to be a three-part um, little thing assuming we don't get canceled before them by the networks or something right right yeah yeah <laughs> um yeah hopefully not so uh today we're talking about the the revolution or are we starting sort of as a precursor to the revolution or are we are we jumping straight into shots fired no so to understand the american revolution and kind of what was going on i think it's very important to understand kind of the um, framework of the colonies in a sense and there's a book that I adore um, I read it a couple of I guess about a year ago now actually um, for a uh, colloquium called the king's three faces the rise and fall of royal america uh, written by Brendan McConville and it's a fascinating book that kind of talks about the well I mean it's in the title the rise and fall of royal america but it takes on this framework of the king and the importance of the king to the colonies. Um, and so I want to talk about that aspect kind of before the American Revolution, because we, we, we all know the the story on taxation without representation. But why was that important? Why was that? Why at this time was taxation without representation a big issue when all these other European kingdoms had taxation without representation in their colonies, but we don't see a revolution in the same way in, a, in many of these places. And I think Brendan McConville's book does a good job of kind of exploring that question. Right. Yeah. Cause if you ask me right now, what the, uh, what the issue was, like, why, why did we break away? Okay. Taxes. And then I, I'd mentioned something about tea mm -hmm. and we were really upset about the taxes on tea. And uh, that's where my knowledge ends. Yeah, and that's kind of the, the basic overview high school tends to do. Um, maybe if you're in an AP class, you go a little bit more in-depth as to maybe it was these planters trying to augment their power that they they lacked. But why don't you see this sort of thing happen elsewhere, sort of, um, is, is a question that historians so ask. So when you say elsewhere... Just uh, for everyone else who, who doesn't know, what were some other colonies that were similar to, to the American colonies at the time? Well, there, there weren't many. So the American colonies, uh, compared to some of the others, were they were temperate. I mean, that's that's one of the things. The, the British had colonies, and the British kind of had colonies going on in India at this time. Their, their Indian colonies don't really become the crown jewel of their empire until after the American Revolution when they lose the 13 colonies, but they also had land up in Canada and they had, a, they had land in the Caribbean. Um, but as far as like a continuous area of this very British identity and make no mistake, the American colonies did have a strong British identity, which this book kind of gets into. It, it's fairly unique for the British empire because they're not at this point, they're not quite at the sun never sets phase. They're getting there, but they're just not quite there just yet. Interesting. Okay, yeah. So they're like a a superpower to be, right? But it's, it's uh, on you, the horizon. You could, say, you could say because of their navy, they're already a superpower. But I feel like when we think of the British Empire at its zenith, we're thinking 1830s with the, uh, with the race for Africa, essentially. Um, I, I think that's kind of where you start thinking of the British Empire. And, and I, that, I could honestly just, don't think... that could just come about because of faster travel. Right. Yeah. I, honestly, when I think of like the British Empire, I just think, oh, yes, the past, the British, the <laughs> British had an empire in the past. That yeah, is the, the but, amount of thinking that I devote to that. But I mean, think about all these all these uh, post-colonial nations that follow a British um, model for their government with the prime minister and, a, and essentially a parliament. Uh, they, they, they'll all call it different things. But they all follow this cabinet system, a, a minister-based system that England uses today still. And the United States, comparatively, doesn't, doesn't quite do the same thing. We have the bicameral legislature with an executive branch 
as opposed to a prime minister. Um, and then you have your separate judiciary, which the British also had a tradition of anyway. So the United States is a little bit unique, and um, that, that will kind of be what I get into for the third part, um, looking at a book called The Radicalism of the American Revolution, which is a really, it's another really good read. Um, but today's kind of the, the setup, if you will. Okay, yeah. Uh, take, take us in. Where, where do we begin? So the first thing I think that's really important to cover is this idea of, of a collective memory or a shared kind of historical consciousness. And it sounds way more complicated than it is. Um, have you ever like done a genealogical study on your family's past? I have, yeah. A couple Christmases ago, we got one of the DNA tests that could show, you know, a couple generations back, and we were able to, to find relatives we didn't know about. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that that's is that what you're referring to? Yeah, yeah. Uh, did you ever? Did, were you ever looking for like, oh, maybe, uh, let's see if we're related to someone, you know, famous in history, or did you ever like seek that out, or you know, anything like that, yes. or yeah, um, yeah. My, my claim to fame, along with many, many other people, is that I'm related to George Washington through his sister. Oh, I didn't know he had a sister. <laughs> but, right. yeah, so so that's like a big thing. Like, you, you talk to families about genealogy, and a lot of them will, oh, yeah, we're related to George Washington, or we're related to John Smith who, for the Jamestown Colony, or Sir Walter Raleigh, you know, people... people find this connection to the past through their family history, their lineage, so to speak. Um, and right. I should I should add that I'm speaking more so for uh, Western Europeans and Americans. Um, you have very different traditions all around the world. So when I'm referring to this, I'm, I'm more referring to Western European and um, um, Western European-based descendants. So... So this is a very common thing for mo- a lot of people is looking to the past for this connection to history. Um, and the American colonists in the 17th century, in the 1600s, basically, they, they weren't any different. So think about it this way. They're, they're separated by an entire ocean. It, it takes forever to travel across because you're, you're on sail, you know, big sailing ships. <laughs> you don't have steam yet. Um, so you're separated from your homeland, regardless of why you left, you, you've left, but you've left that familiarity. You've left the homeland and you are now a colonist in a new land. So it becomes very important for these colonists to establish a link to set themselves as British, basically, if that okay. makes sense. Right. So, yeah, they don't have an identity. It's It's all, they're in a new place. They're you know, they, they've gone over to a, a sleepover at a friend of a friend's house and they're like, oh, my goodness, who am I? <laughs> yeah. What that, am I doing here? That's kind of what happens is even if these people have left for religious reasons, they're still attempting to legitimize themselves. Um, and so what you end up with um, going on in England after the Glorious Revolution, um, it, I always had it referred to as the Cromwell sandwich. You basically had a period of uh, political upheaval in um england really before the 13 colonies take off james uh, elizabeth dies james uh takes the throne his son charles takes the throne there's a big revolution they behead him uh oliver cromwell becomes dictator of england basically um he gets offed um charles comes in and how did he charles. get offed I, I don't remember i can't remember exactly how. <laughs> um okay, but you have you have uh <laughs> you have another charles come in um, and then another James, and James is overthrown, and the British Parliament, and this is a very key point, the British Parliament invites William and Mary of Orange, so they're Dutch, to take the throne, uh, a dual monarchy, essentially. This is very important because now you've established Parliament as something of a kingmaker, almost an equal entity to the king, establishing this king and parliament type, um, type system of governance. Interesting. So high-level overview, a, a bunch of upheaval, kings have, have died and, and been replaced, and then Parliament says, okay, we'll pick a new one because the old ones are, are dead. Yeah, kind of, and they want some, They want 
someone better, basically. So you have the Glorious Revolution, which is a so-called bloodless revolution where a new dynasty comes and takes over. Um, this destroys the idea of the divine right in England because Parliament has established this, um, this, this kingdom. Well, colonists in the Americas, they're a bit separated from all this, and they're really seeking out the shared heritage with England. They want to be English. You know, they're, they're not, they're not Americans yet. They're, no one's using that term really. They're, they're British. So they start linking themselves to the king, to the throne itself. So the past, the his, history, their history is essentially passing through the throne. It's not passing through parliament. And this later is going to cause kind of a big issue if you know your history on the American Revolution. So you have you have these colonists who are essentially in the early phases of deifying the king in a very Protestant land. There's no divine right, but colonists are pretty much near worshiping the king himself. Um, and so you uh, McConville kind of uh, McConville phrases this the imagined king. So. Interesting. Okay, so they, they really like the king because he's part of their identity, right? So they're saying, like, I'm somewhat tied to the throne, even though I'm at a friend of a friend's house sleepover. Like, I'm in a weird place. I've got this, this connection. Yeah, they're using, they're using the throne as a connection to the claim British ancestry. We're subjects of the crown. We're not subjects of parliament. We're subjects of the crown. However, in England, you have a very different story where the, the king is in parliament. So the parliament and the king are ruling together, essentially. Yeah, okay. And so this somewhere in there, the Magna Carta, right? That, that, that came about in that uh, time. Magna, Magna Carta is way earlier than this. Uh, uh, Magna okay. Carta is like two generations after William the Conqueror. So, yeah, it, Magna Carta is medieval age. What, what does Magna Carta mean? Oh, gosh. I, I don't know my Latin. It, it's a governing document. Huh? <laughs> Big Carta. <laughs> Just looked it up. Big Carta. Okay. <laughs> we shouldn't. That's what we should have called our constitution. Um, <laughs> so as people begin to love the king more, and it's a weird phrase, but as people are deifying the king and drawing this connection to the king, establishing this shared historical past that we are British, um, you start to get political rituals taking place and political holidays, such as the king's birthday, taking place. And these are becoming a bigger deal than some of the religious holidays. Again, the uh, 13 colonies are for the most part Protestant. I know Maryland, I think, was a Catholic colony. Um but for the most part, it's a Protestant, so you already kind of have a little bit of separation now um, between this divine nature of just everything that this at that Catholicism used at the time, and I'm pr very likely oversimplifying that. That's okay. The, the show's called Lazy People. <laughs> yeah. That's all right. Um, but you have these political rituals, parades, um, That that's a big one, or toasting to the king's health before a meeting or swearing in you know at the king's pleasure basically but parades in particular and feasts and that sort of stuff these politically oriented gatherings are hugely impactful on most on on broad spectrums of the population because they're offering political education for people who normally would be left out of politics like in england you're not going to see the same thing really if you're if you're a yeoman English farmer or something, or um, I should say maybe a sharecropper in England or something along those lines, you're not going to have the same political education that many of the yeoman farmers in the Americas are getting through participation in these political events that are coming up in the name of the king. Interesting, it's, but it's like it's a lot of holidays, right? Like they're they're celebrating things there. Mm -hmm. They're having a good time because they they want to get back to their roots and throw parties in the name of the king to have a good time and also, you know, just 
everybody looks around and says, hey, I'm, I'm British. And then the other guy says, hey, I, I'm also British. And they say, yes, we're very British together. Yeah. And that's who we are. And we can feel comfortable about that. Yeah. It's establishing this this shared historical heritage, basically. It's a, it's constructed almost um, or not almost. I think you can make a very strong argument that is wholly constructed, this, this historic past that they're building based on the king. But whenever you get a lot of people celebrating a holiday, you get different reasons why that holiday happens. Um, so this is where you start seeing some conflict a little bit um, because mass participation of in these political rituals in relation to a king that everyone has no contact with, by the way, for the most part. If you're not a royal official, you're really not having any contact with the king at all. So your interactions with the king are wholly imagined. Your idea of who the king is is imagined. Right. And different I'm people... people writing letters to the king, like they're writing letters to Santa Claus, you know, like, yeah, hey, I mean, the king. <laughs> I mean, I think, I th I think that's a a simple comparison you can make to to really make this make sense is the king is a unlike well i'm not gonna ruin santa claus for kids but the king exists but you can't see him you can't go just watch him on television instead you're consuming media of the king through engravings drawings parades effigies that sort of thing right because of this the king's kind of means something different to different groups of people. It's not necessarily the same king for everyone. Right. Yeah. Not the same Santa for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, <laughs> so because of this, if you're, if you're upper class in the uh, colonies, you're going to um, view the king differently than a yeoman farmer in the colonies. Um, and this is going to cause a lot of uh, conflict later. So if you're upper class, um, and we just talked about kind of this family heritage thing, um, upper class people t like to make coat of arms and establish this link to a British nobility, essentially. Um, especially in like Virginia and the South. And you see that and you, you kind of see this aristocracy stick in the South for quite a while. Um I've always wondered about sort of how that, uh, you know, how that really took took heart in in America, it was... and also like, I, I don't know, like I I guess did did people back then just have a really good sense of who their great great grandfather was? Because I I don't know who that is. <laughs> it was important for a lot of them to do this, and I. You you might you might see it with uh, your lower classes your your. Um poor classes but upper classes really genealogy was very important because again it is if you're upper class you you especially at this time you're kind of considering yourself better than the rest and you have right. to have a reason why i'm better than the rest and the fact that you have a history and this gets into a whole nother topic about written history and and what it means to actually have a history um and that that we could go on for three or four hours, but so we're not going to touch that one today. <laughs> um, right. I think it's interesting though, because at some point in history, somebody looked around, looked around in the room and, and said, you know what? I'm better than everyone. <laughs> and everyone just kind of went with it. Well, you know, everyone's the, like, I, I yeah, I guess you are. Well, the people who would do that were typically the people who owned crops, who owned the method of feeding people, basically. And when you're the one responsible whether or not people get fed, you're you're going to get a sense of superiority. I feel that. Whenever I have people over and I make dinner, I always look around at everybody eating dinner and I think they're enjoying that because of me. I'm pretty special because they're they're, you know, having a good time. God, I hope I get an allergic reaction next time I over there. So <laughs> So Yeah. So now you've got this this situation where everyone's imagining this king that they love. And so you get a lot of documentation about this love for the king and this affection. And royal officials speaking on behalf of the king are also showing affection from the king because it promotes unity. Hey, the king loves you. 
So don't go and break the law because our great king loves you. He's kind of this patriarchal <laughs> figure. And so people, when they break the law, they'll appeal to the king. I love the king, but your official did this and I could not abide by it. Um, so that, the, that's hilarious. But like what kind of petty crimes would they, you know, would they be like, oh, you know, don't don't steal, don't murder the the because the king king's always watching. He's he's got his eye on you. Or was it, you know, just like it was more know, like it uh, was more like things to promote unity. So you're not gonna go over there and invite the French army onto your farm if you're living in the Appalachian Mountains because the king loves you and doesn't want the French on his land. Um, and that's an extreme <laughs> example. But it it's it's mostly to promote unity and kind of this sense. So like in America, you know, we're Americans. We band together when something bad happens or we look out for our fellow, you know, patriots, that sort of thing. And I shouldn't use patriots. That's a very loaded term now. But it's it's a very, it's kind of a similar thing. We're British. The king loves you. He cares about you. And then people will in turn show their affection towards the king to show how British they are. I love the king, you know, our great king whom we love dearly, you know, is how the, they might start a letter to the king or something like that. So, right. A, a bit of deference to, yeah. to the king. So I, I think that's interesting because I, I, I imagine in my head a judge in one of those little wigs and he's like, you know what? You know, you shouldn't you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't let the French on your land because the king loves you. He gets down off his stand. He walks over and then he kisses him on the forehead. And he said, the king loves you. Mwah. The king loves you. Mwah. Mwah. That, but in written form. <laughs> in written form and not like fan fiction written form and very professional. You read it today and you're like, huh, that S looks a lot like an F form um so so the the law back then was just just the king fan fiction yeah. <laughs> everybody like and then the king walks in looking <laughs> dapper uh in his little petticoats walks over in his, his little shoes and frocks and <laughs> pecks you on the forehead i mean i've not come across any fan fiction like that but <laughs> i'm sure someone wrote it somewhere and they probably were from Georgia. But this, so <laughs> what you end up getting with all of this is a question, kind of, how do you love what you cannot see, what you've never met or seen? And the answer to the colonists was merchandising, something that is oh. an American tradition today, even. So, so okay. what merchandising... Well, yeah, yeah, what what kind of merchandising are we yeah. talking about? So, <laughs> so we're talking mugs like portraits on mugs wax figures effigies portraits puppet shows um british officials are gifting out portraits of the king and different little mementos of the king lockets that's you know it's it's <laughs> this like promotion of consumer culture in the 13 colonies centered around deification of the king um so for the government this is merchandising isn't necessarily a bad thing if they can control it because they can control the image of the king they can control what the king should mean to people however they can't control it and so the king still means many different things based on how he's kind of merchandised oh okay so i already see this like as a little bit of foreshadowing of like everybody loves the king he's this great guy everybody's got this great image of the king and then he shows up and he's a total jerk <laughs> well i don't he never he never comes to the colonies the king oh. never never and it, it, it's funny because um the colony of carolina uh and then north carolina specifically was run under the lord's proprietors uh, which sought to establish and this is in the early 1600s sought to establish this um or mid 1600s i think this recreation of british nobility in north carolina and so you have these nobles back in england attempting to govern north carolina and they th these districts are named after them and they never set foot in north carolina any of them is that raleigh uh, no, Raleigh's actually a fairly new city comparatively to like um, even Charlotte. Raleigh's new. Wilmington, Raleigh's fairly new. Raleigh was um, the the capital of Colonial North Carolina was Edenton, and then 
I just I drew a complete blank. Newburn, I think. I think it was Newburn. Right. Um, and Raleigh was chosen because it was a little more central later on. Um, so I, I know a little bit about Walter Raleigh. Walter Raleigh was like this macho man, and it was, I believe it was what James II, who had this beautiful wife, and Walter Raleigh was like this Indiana Jones character who kicks open the door. He's this rugged explorer. He woos the queen. The king doesn't like that. He locks his wife away in this big, like, white castle and then exile. Or he was going to execute Walter Raleigh, but then he's like, last minute, you know what? You're okay. You're actually pretty cool, but you can't be here. Um, you know, we we can't be in the same room together. You look too good. Kicks him off to uh, Americas, and he just, you know, pisses off to the Americas and lives his life. And I think he gets almost executed here at some point but then you know people are just like you know what you're a pretty cool dude twice nearly executed but his coolness saved him those are goals like right that, that that's an actual historical fact that i am vaguely remembering i have i don't know much about sir walter raleigh um i know a fake story where he put his cloak on the ground for the queen to step on or something like that but i don't think it's real um but anyway, <laughs> getting a little bit back here on uh, on track. Um, so we were at like we were at the merchandising basically, and it kind of reminds me of uh, Hercules, the Disney animated movie, um, right? Where Hades is getting mad at his little minions because they're basically running around <laughs> with Hercules merchandise, um, right? But I feel like this this is kind of what you're getting in the colonies where people are running around with merchandise of the king it's almost like a fan club you know they're writing fan fiction for the king like you said they've they've, they've the colonies are this wonderful kingly fan club uh the birthdays are being celebrated with pomp and fanfare and parades and official portraits and just it's just a it's just a rip-roaring good time for everyone and so the the american colonists into the 1700s are just they're wholly embracing the concept of empire they want to be british subjects they are happy being british subjects they are proud to be british subjects and they are part of the proud british empire and this is actually kind of a problem for the colonies <laughs> uh-oh so by the 1760s the uh, colonial population is booming i mean it's it's going wild and you have a very large land holding class growing in the colonies so in england you really have a static freeholding population uh, people who own land and if you own land in england you're expected to take part in government because you you probably your family's probably owned that land for a long time again that's one way you could kind of stretch back your family history and claim a history to England is I've held la I've owned land in England. My family's owned land in England for 250 years now. It was gifted to us by King Henry the second or whatever. So, okay. So in the colonies, you have a very, you have a system of governance and institutions that are modeling English structures. It's Anglicanization. Um, and your colonial power structures are being modeled after imperial power structures. But this is kind of a problem because in England, your imperial power structures, your, your governing power structure is not growing, is static. Because the people who hold land and are thus expected to take part in politics are static. I, I have a question about that. Yeah. Is the amount of land that, that any person owns at all relative to how much power they have in... In office like for example if you own say a very small amount of land like less than an acre are you going to be you know taking notes at, at a meeting probably or... not um it, it's it's i would imagine and i'm not for the time period i'm not much of an expert on land ownership necessarily um but i would imagine the value of your land is is very important you can own a bunch of swamp and no one's gonna care you know you can lay claim to l the state of louisiana and no one's gonna care it's swamps <laughs> um so yeah i would say it, it's more likely related to value but in the 13 colonies there's land everywhere at this time and 
it's up for grabs if you're English because the Native Americans are being decimated by smallpox. And if you can't see them, it's not your problem, basically. That's kind of the mentality. If they're not there, and even if they are there, you just get rid of them and they're not your problem now. Um, so it's a it's super racist, but this is the mentality that English colonists were, were falling under. Dang, but, that's, yeah, that's really harsh. Yeah. Um, so... <laughs> So because they're mimicking English institutions, these colonial officials in the Americas, they're emulating English traditions, basically. They're emulating, they're establishing themselves as these community patriarchal figures, that as these fathers of these communities, of these counties, of these cities. They are kind of the, the fathers. Um, Would you say founding fathers? Yeah, you're spoiling it. Oh, so, oh sorry. <laughs> so in the Americas, you, you, the institutions are not growing fast enough to keep up with the amount of people who are now expecting to take part in politics. So people start to not feel very represented in politics. They they are left out, even though they own all this land, even though they've traced their heritage back to some obscure noble in 12th century England even though they own land and have wealth and are expressing their love for the king, they can't take part in politics. They're struggling to get in. So now, now we've kind of, now we kind of have so a problem. Wait a growing. Second. You're telling me that this whole war is just because a few powerful people are pissed off and they want more money and more representation for themselves. What a shock. Ah, oh. what a shock. So these families start kind of getting in the competition with themselves. They've got money and they don't have much to do because they're all enslaving people anyway. So they start competing with one another, basically. So because these different families are imagining the king in different ways and they're fighting over very limited space in the political arena, they start to use the king and holidays for their own purposes. So they're starting to alter traditions or make changes to their toast to kind of one-up the other families. Interesting. Yeah. But it's not just this upper crust that's doing this. You have your lower classes also embracing the cult of the king and start to argue that these royal officials that are being sent over are not representing the king properly. Remember, they've never met the king. They've never spoken to the king. Their education of the king comes from participation in these different festivals and hearing how much the king loves them and maybe reading a newspaper or something. But so, they, they have daydreamed of the king. They've met him <laughs> in their minds. He, is, he has come down off of his throne, kissed them upon the forehead, picked them up like a little child and, and carried them to and fro... They've, they've met him that way. Yeah. Yeah, basically. So <laughs> so a good example of this is um, actually in North Carolina, believe it or not. I know a lot about North Carolina, apparently, um, with the Regulator Rebellion in the 1760s. Um, and a quick refresher on what the Regulator Rebellion was. It was the largest... It was the largest agrarian revolt anywhere in the 13 colonies before the American Revolution. Essentially, the entire western half of the colony of North Carolina rose up in rebellion. Um, and up in Alamance, uh, there was a battle between royal forces and militias and western rebel militias. Um, relatively few people die. The regulator rebellion dies off. The, royal, the royals win. And in fact, um, in fact, you see some of the founding father or american founding fathers basically kind of taking the side of the royals because they know what the king actually wants not these rabble here in western north carolina but the whole conflict was over money um western <laughs> there was no there was not enough cash in the state for westerners uh to establish themselves as landowners and so they were often in debt to people who would have money in the east and would just buy up all the land speculation basically they would just buy up all the land and sit on it. And Westerners resented that because they just could not get cash. They had the means to get cash, but there was no cash available. There was just no, there was nothing. It was all concentrated in the, the hands of a very few. And so the regulators rose up and tried to forcibly take a lot of this land. But mm, the entire time is... they're doing this, they're literally fighting royal government. They're proclaiming themselves to be the true loyal subjects 
of the king. They're still loyal to King George III, and they believe if King George knew what was going on, he'd side with them. He'd be on their side of that with all this. <laughs> that's, that's hilarious. I, I think that it really is like Santa Claus. They're like, no, no, no. You guys don't know Santa Claus. You've never met Santa Claus. I know Santa Claus. Santa Claus me and Santa Claus have a soul-to-soul understanding <laughs> with one another. And I'm doing what he would want. That, that's, I mean, it's a decent, it's a good comparison. Um, it's, these people have imagined the king in different ways to suit their own ideas of how the world needs to be working. But they're always doing this in the name of the king because they want to share in this historic British past, basically. And that's, this is kind of part of what McConville argues. McConville also gets into a religious aspect to all of this. I'm not getting into that tonight because... That would add another hour and a half to this talk. Um, but yeah, different people are imagining the king in different ways. And you have two, you'll have two competing factions, both fighting each other in the name of the king that they both proclaimed love. So that that's really, I feel like there's a lot of things you could kind of read into there about like what people fight for in general, like freedom, liberty, um, you know, any one of those things that is basically just a, a, a word that people will get behind, uh-huh. right? Like it, it has a strong meaning, but more of its purpose is just a rallying cry, yeah. you know? Yeah, no, that's accurate. It, it just, it, based on circumstances, it will t- take on a different meaning to a different person. So, right. Um, so, one more thing before we really dive into the breaking point um, is something called rough music. And McConville details this. It's this practice that's used in England to kind of uphold community standards, uh, more usually um, gendered or sexual. So if a man is cheating on another, uh, is cheating on his wife with another man's wife, rough music is enacted by the community and they basically will loudly shame him in the streets. They will harass him. They may (laughs) steal his clothes. It's like this, it's like this vigilante justice basically. And there's public shaming. It's, it's essentially public shaming. Yeah. And so they'll do things that in some cases it will get particularly violent. Um, but these lower classes are doing this to uphold the King's order. Essentially they do this kind of in the name of the King. So this is this is a fairly important wow. point. <laughs> so, are are they out there shouting like the king expects you to have better standards? You know, l- look at her. You know, the king expects you if you are to adulterate to at <laughs> least have better tastes. The king would not be thrilled with this. The yeah. king would not be aroused. <laughs> I don't. <The> king- <laughs> I, <laughs> I think King George actually had mental issues if memory serves, so who knows with him. But um, the king is not into this. Yeah, I mean that's that's basically what it boils down to: is the king's not into this, and you shouldn't be either because you love the king like us, right? 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 <laughs> um, and you're you're going yes, yes, yes because they're holding a shard of glass up to your neck. So, so into the 1770s this love of the king is persisting. And if you know your American Revolution, 1774 is really when things start to heat up big time uh, between the colonies and England. But even into the 1770s, as this institu- as all the institutions are straining under the weight of all these landowners trying to get into this political system to take part in the empire, no one's really talking about leaving the empire and building their own thing. They want to they reform the colonies themselves to strengthen the king's power in the colonies. Notice how in all of this, there's very little discussion of parliament, though. And as I stated earlier, the king is ruling in conjunction with parliament. So you might be able to kind of see where this train is heading now. (laughs) I do not. Okay. Stick with me, then. (laughs) Okay, I'm here. So... Uh, there was uh, McConville cites one author, uh, I think his name was Granville Sharp, um, who basically he wrote all British subjects, whether in Great Britain, Ireland or the colonies are equally free by the law of nature um, and had a right to a share of the legislation. And this right could never be removed. 
That sounds a lot like taxation without representation, basically. Okay, right. Yes, yes, I know that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so they want to reform it so that they have a say in, in the empire because they're imperial subjects. They own land. They are nobility, essentially, in America. They are, they are these fathers of their communities, just like they, you have these lords in England who are kind of the fathers of these communities. They're, these upper-class people in the United States, or not the United States, the colonies, are viewing themselves in very much the same manner. Right, right. So. Okay. So, bad things start piling up. The, the uh, French and Indian War, which is part of the broader Seven Years' War, takes place. The British have to raise taxes because they're like, hey, we just paid for you guys to have to keep this land. Y'all got to give us a little something. But the colonists are pissed because they don't have a say in any of this. And they appeal to the king. They're begging the king, please step in and save us. Parliament is abusing us. They're blaming all these deficiencies in the empire, all the, the lack of institutional growth. It's Parliament's fault. It's not the king's fault. The king would never, never hurt us. The king was appealed to by people in the colonies to fix these things. Because he's the one who loves them. He's the one who cares about them. This is what the British have been telling them for two, uh, 150 years now. And they've been expressing their love to the king back. So why now is the, why now would the king ignore us? So surely he's going to come and help us, right? You know, they're, they're, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I've seen him in my, in my daydreams. He yeah. is a wonderful, strong... I have, I have a wax figure of the king. He loves me. The royal, the royal governor <laughs> told me this. The newspaper told me this. This king loves who I am, and he because I'm British. I'm a British subject. I'm his loyal British subject. So the Stamp Act um, and and the Intolerable Acts, they're blamed on Parliament. Parliament is the one that did this, not the king. The king wouldn't do this to us if he would just step in. Everything would be fine. And so, most of these writers in the Americas are writing to King George the Third. They're not writing to Parliament asking for things they're writing to king george and in fact after the stamp act which was incredibly unpopular in the colonies uh and this stamp act was used to it was basically an increase in taxes on paper and stamps and other other fun necessities for rich people essentially but it trickles down to poor people because poor people need paper money and have to send letters sometimes and invoices anyway that that is something i have a vague familiarity with from high school history. Yeah. So my, my Venn diagram of things I know about uh, the revolution and high school history is, is just a circle. They're, <laughs> they're the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Stamp Act is blamed on Parliament. And in the time from the 1760s to the 1770s, McConville writes that royal celebrations and this love of the king is actually increasing. It's not decreasing. People are expressing their love for the king more and more and more and more, as opposed to less and less and less, and blaming the king for all the ills. You would think, you would think they might start blaming, they would be blaming the king for all this, because he's the one who they've been taught, basically, to appeal to. He's their, their divine leader, almost, even though they don't do divine leadership anymore he's almost he's essentially divine in the colonies that that that's really fascinating i i think like in general it's easy to like somebody who's not there yeah right <laughs> it, you know so like if it's oh my goodness you know th this wonderful uh per like this is gonna sound dark but like after somebody dies nobody speaks ill of them they're like oh if only they were here they would know exactly what to do and mm -hmm. maybe they would maybe they wouldn't they're not there you get to imagine that yes they would have the right you know the right thing to say that the comforting words the words of wisdom to fix all the problems you know but if, if it's a terrible situation like you're broken down on the side of the road they're probably going to be pissed and you know unhappy just like you are you know it's it's uh just just by their absence they get a sort of deified status yeah heart makes our absence makes the heart grow fonder type thing yeah yeah um so mcconville has a line that i want to read off because i really like it um, and i think it really kind of sums up everything i've been talking about so far 
The king as a constitutional broker, king above parliament, king of salvation, anointed by God, man, and nature, provincial America's political culture encouraged such thoughts. Indeed, they were its end product. Only in this light can we understand the First Continental Congress's petition to the king, who glories in the name of Britain, asking for his clemency and protection. So the appeals are going to the king, and they're still loving. They're still glorifying the king. Asking him for salvation from this evil parliament, basically. Wow. So I feel like at this time, if the king had been like, you know what, guys, I, I don't know if I've got all the answers, but I'm going to come see you. I'm going to come <laughs> to other Americas. I'm going to be wearing my little frocks and my wig, and I'm going to kiss everyone on the forehead. The American Revolution just, just would have stopped right there. Everybody would have said, cool, that's what we really wanted. That's what we're after. So McConville actually kind of asks this question at the end of his book. He starts engaging in counterfactuals, which are basically what-if questions. And he asks the question, what if the institutions in the colonies had grown with the population of the colony? What if the British authority had proved more flexible and allowed for this like sense of nobility to grow in the, United, in the colonies? Would the American re Revolution have happened? Um, and with counterfactuals, you don't one of the one of the strategies you use you kind of remove a variable and then try to play things out to see what would happen he doesn't really do that at the end of the book but i think it's a very interesting question and what if histories are very problematic because it's fiction um uh, but it's it's an interesting thought is yeah it's an interesting thought what if the british imperial system in the colonies expanded and actually allowed for a broader participation with this upper class and i don't know what do you think what do you think would have happened would there have been a revolution i i think we just had what we would have had a civil war sooner really you know, I, I think oh yeah i mean like if you get if you give everybody a bunch of power and you say hey you are fantastic you are wonderful you're great uh and you just start adding to those people you know ad nauseum I feel like eventually some group of, of persons is going to get together and say, we're great, but also we're better than the other people that you say that are great. Mm. You see, it, it's like that, uh, that saying that Syndrome had in The Incredibles, you know, <laughs> uh, if everybody's super, no one is, right? So if you have so many nobles, you're going to get a bunch of people that are going to say, we're the, the noblest nobles you know we're yeah. the super nobles so you're kind of you're kind of saying um that the very foundation of the british political system would not have supported any growth in the colonies from your perspective yeah my, my perspective is based off of uh, this conversation yeah. in the movie <laughs> the incredibles so uh, that's all i got that's that's how you get history degrees anyway you watch the incredibles I... and you tie it into your uh, <laughs> to your final research paper your capstone um, and your professor just kind of shakes, shakes their head and just goes, whatever, I'm done with you. You've been talking about the Incredibles for four years in this program. You're done. <laughs> get out. Just, you, I, you, I would like, you get a B, a, get a counterfactual. <laughs> King George comes over, uh, looking like George Washington crossing the Delaware <laughs> and he and George Washington go into a room and it's low lighting they're both in their powder rigs. They say, oh, it's it's a little warm in here. Maybe we could take these little petticoats off. No. Um, uh, so. <laughs> no, no, no. This is the end of the American Revolution. We would still be a British colony. There'd be statues everywhere. People would have loved it. I don't. So. <laughs> just for the petticoats comments. I hate it. Um, so. Like a rubber band, it, everything kind of snaps back now, and you have the revolution kick off because people have lost complete confidence in the king. He's not listening to their appeals. He's not listening to us. He said he loved us, but we've been betrayed by the king. He's betrayed us. And that's he this mentality. Him on red. Yeah, he left them on red, basically. Um, that's, that's perfect. He, he doesn't listen to them. And. I mean, there's debate if he even had the authority to do something like this anyway, to do what the colonists wanted to do. So a lot of the colonist appeals could have been based in a misunderstanding of royal power, but a misunderstanding that was perpetuated by those very royal powers trying to ensure unity and loyalty in the colonies, which are far flung away from 
the motherland. So, so if he had just responded to those messages, those <laughs> letters, I love you, George, and then, you know, draw a little little kissy face at the bottom, no revolution. <laughs> yeah, but again, it would have been very verbose because this is the 1770s, so you have to have it. Draws a little stick sentence. figure of himself. No, no, no. Draws a little stick figure of himself, little arrow to it. Draws a stick figure of someone else. He writes you beside that one, and then a heart above it. Aww, that's it no words that's it instead you get rough music turned on to royal officials so there was a reason i talked about rough music because we all know the image of tar and feathering and the boston tea party these were essentially rough music practices that have been repurposed to turn into rebellion against the empire um you Goodness. stop seeing people uh praising so quick, quick question yeah, yeah tar and feathering does it kill them it could, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. When I said rough music was violent, it could kill. Um, tar and feathering could kill you easily. Um, especially well, I mean, if they pour the wax. Tar's got to be really hot, right? Yeah, exactly. To, to get yeah. on you. And for everyone that doesn't know, tar and feathering, you get tar, which I guess is just sort of a rock it's, type substance. It's, it's uh, a very, it's very hot substance to get it. They're doing it hot. I don't think you necessarily have to, um, but they're doing it hot because they wanted to cool so you, with the feathers. You get a bunch of yuck, you heat it up, and then you stick stick it on someone, and then you throw a bunch of feathers on them. Yeah, it's essentially uh, it's essentially a non-racial lynching. Oh. Yeah. Um, but you also get the Boston Tea Party. So you have these rough music practices that are repurposed against the king, against his officials. People no longer want you expressing your love for the king. People stop swearing in to their jury duty in the name of the king. Royal holidays, like the king's birthday, you don't celebrate them anymore. And in fact, you use rough music to make sure other people around you aren't celebrating it anymore. McConville talks about, um, in, uh, I think it was the New York Harbor, um, a British ship fired a gun salute for... Um, the king's birthday and normally everyone in the city would hoot and holler and you know just have a big ball uh for the king's birthday and and in response and according to the writer no one responds and in fact one loyalist uh did and like was turning on their lights in their house and their neighbors went to them and forced them to turn off all the lights and shutter their windows because they did not want oh anyone goodness. celebrating the king's birthday yeah they were heartbroken he left them on red <laughs> yeah um, so crowds are kind of enforcing this informal ban and the American revolution happens and McConville doesn't really draw this, uh, doesn't really focus on this link, but I think it's, a, I think if you're a non-academic historian, this is probably the most interesting takeaway for this oh, is that, up. is that basically the u.s has this founding father myth it's like this collective history this is what we plant our past to is we don't plant our past necessarily to england's past we plant it our history kind of starts with the george washington's thomas jefferson john adams thomas Paine, benjamin franklin john morrison all these all these founding fathers basically this is kind of the beginning of history as taught in the united states um so it's like these same the same sense of loyalty and love for the king gets turned into a love for the founding fathers who have already been acting in a very British institutionalist manner within the imperial framework. So these mm. British practices of parades and holidays and stuff, they're now stripped of their royal rituals and meanings and kind of reinterpreted to to this new founding father myth, basically. Uh, I'm just imagining a, like a teen girl who's who's got a pension for bad boys, and you know, and she's like, "Okay, I'm I'm done with you, King. Get out of here, King. I've <laughs> I've got a new man now, King. Look look at him. He's he's got a gun. He's got well, a pet eagle. It, it's it's a bit like that because all the merchandise of the king vanishes, and it's quickly replaced with merchandise for George Washington. Look at uh, pictures on coins and dollar bills and monuments and um 
people just seeking to express their love for the founding fathers. Last week, we talked about the cheese wheel to Thomas Jefferson, these townspeople getting together and making a bunch of cheese and sending it off because they're so proud of Thomas Jefferson, their illustrious founding father. <laughs> so you, you see the same sense of affections going towards this new historic past that's been formed in the United States, in the new United States. So... Um, and so that, that, I, that is fascinating because I'm I'm already beginning to see that like we have a long history of just hyping ourselves up mm-hmm. and comparing ourselves to real people with real names but mythical persons and 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 grandeur. Yeah, that's that's basically it. Like, and and then I like to draw the comparison with the merchandising. Think about your President's Day's car sales with the big Uncle Sam blow up thing. It's hugely tacky, and your sleazy car salesmen are wearing red, white, and blue uh, ties. And merchandising with the American with the American flag is on everything. You pledge right. allegiance to the flag. You you can't in, in schools, you know, or or especially in more conservative areas, you can't say anything bad about the founding fathers because of this. Um, this, this adoration for them, this deification that's taken place. And that really is like directly descended from the deification of King George III. It's just the rituals have been repurposed <laughs> in an American manner. I say we should flip the script and say only incredibly uncomfortably good things about the Founding Fathers. <laughs> you know, talk about their their throbbing biceps and their massive pectorals and their little petticoats and wigs and that would give and uh, tiny little Day wooden shoes. A, that would give President's Day sales a whole different feel. Very right? Different. Yeah, and just have them. Yeah, have them in the the most alluring outfits that 1700s America can offer. Right, and then <laughs> and then they come in, they scoop you up, and, and they give you a kiss on the forehead and they take you and they walk through a field of grain and you just go on and on about, I I would love to have a conversation with somebody that's just super pro, you know, George Washington per se and be like, yeah, yeah. I last night had a dream where George Washington came and picked me up and we went on a trip together. And then we went into a small room, turned the candles down low we took off each other's wigs. He looked at me and he said, I am proud of you. And then we took off our petticoats and we climbed into a straw bed together. I hope this part's just... getting edited. <laughs> no, this, this, is, uh... <laughs> this is who we are. Not me. <laughs> That's who you are. <laughs> it, it is a strange thing that I've, I've persistently... Uh, brought this up probably four I, times. I'm I'm sitting here going like, oh my god, he's a Republican speechwriter. <laughs> no, I'm just incredibly into early American Revolution fan fiction, oh, and okay. I don't care who knows it. Well, I'll link you some fanfiction.net stuff. Um, so next week, <laughs> that, that's that's all I've got on on this topic, and um, I do highly recommend uh, Brendan McConville's book. It's, again, it's called uh, "The King's Three Faces: The Rise and Fall of Royal America." Um, that's that's where I've pulled most of this from, um, and so again, it, it's a, not a terribly difficult read, but I might be, um, <laughs> I might be broken as a grad student to where. If, it, if it's something that reads like this, it's not bad compared to some of the other stuff I read. But it is—it's a really, really interesting book, and especially if you're into like the religious history of the United States, it's—it's it's really good for that too. So, um, but next week I'll—I'll I'll talk. I'll—we'll do um, something a little bit less. Um, I don't know if abstract's the right word, but something a little more common with um, kind of a military political overview of the american revolution and maybe some goofy fun stories from it oh nice yeah that sounds like fun yeah i I do think overall like the the overarching takeaway for me is that america has always been a place 
that has an imagined past. Well, everywhere, basically. I don't well, think it's. I, ne- I, think I don't America's think it's necessary. Got a, a, like a, a complex, like a, a structure that goes with it. We have we have the the merchandise, the coins, the 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 his, the holidays, all of those things where we have like an industry around something that never happened at all. I I think I think it, it that happens in other places but I think it's so mainstream in the United States that this almost almost toxic nationalism in both political parties exists and that it's it's mainstream it's this exceptionalist ideology and which which cracks me up because our entire structure of institutions is heavily modeled on english the very country that the united states broke away from um and part three will kind of get into why that statement might not necessarily be true i believe it's uh gordon wood's book i'll have to double check on it but um right that will be two weeks from now so okay but yep that's all i got and we're done with you go back to my book hole <laughs> so. i i uh i want to have a quick quip for that uh is that what you call your uh early american fan fiction i don't write early american fan fiction that's just you <laughs> no i just read it <laughs> oh okay <laughs> i want to find who writes it then and stop them they must be dealt with no it's just me it's just me reading it. Oh god! One other person writing it. Great. <laughs> anyway, with that, it, is there anything more exhilarating than the idea of a petticoat? Yeah. Not having smallpox. <laughs> not having whooping cough. Eating wooden teeth. Yeah, not having wooden teeth. Having dentists that their only solution is just to pull out the tooth. Um, air conditioning.